Hey there, and welcome to Queer I Am Lord, a brand new show where two or more gather together to Kiki in God's name, I like to say. I'm Jorge Olivares of HeyJorge.com, and I'm so glad that I already got a reaction from my guest. Uh, and my guest is Joseph Rojo, who himself is a queer Latino who originally hails from Southern California, but is now living in Missouri as he's pursuing his degree in the medical field. And as we were talking about a little bit before we, we started recording this conversation, is there because there are a lot of things you need to learn how to do hands-on. And honestly, if I were to ever go to a doctor, I would love to know that they knew all these things after having experienced it firsthand on a physical basis. But uh, I want to talk to Joseph about a particular thing because we're both uh, Mexican-American. We both have this really Chicano background behind us. And usually Catholicism is tied to that identity. Um, but Joseph's journey has been a little bit different than my own, which is why I'm excited to bring him onto the show to talk about that journey. So Joseph, thank you so much for joining me here on Queer I Am Lord. Yeah, this is super exciting. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's exciting to be like queer Latinos talking together about just our lives and how it's been easy in some regards and difficult in others. I think the fact that we can both describe ourselves proudly as queer Latinos says a lot about our own journeys and our comfortabilities with our identities. Um, is that kind of apt for me to say that you are at this yeah. place right now that it is just, ta-da, here I am, a queer Latino, take it or leave it. I'm just gonna live my life. Yeah, oh, totally, absolutely. I think uh, the Latino part really comes big into into that uh, mentality of like, this is who I am, we're doing it. Like, either like support me or get out of the way. <laughs> I think that's so true. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your current situation. You are attending medical school in St. Louis. Um, just so that way we can kind of get a sense, I alluded to it when I first did the introduction, but you're having to go in, you're doing all these things uh, kind of hand in hand with others. What does that process look like? What has it been? Has it been difficult? Has it been eye-opening? Um, kind of walk us through that a little bit if you can. Um, through medical school in general or through like medical school in the pandemic? In the pandemic, because I think that can only be even more uh, nerve wracking because here you are doing something very life affirming. Um, and a lot of people were kind of relying on medical students and people in the medical profession to get us through this weird time. Totally. Um, it's a gr great starting question. I think at the start of the pandemic, which is like almost a year ago now, which is like wild to me, um, we definitely moved to like purely virtual, um, which made sense for where, where I was as a first year med student. Uh, so the first two years of med school typically is more of your like lecture base, like you sit in the classroom or you do virtual learning. Uh, which we had been doing beforehand for years anyway. Um, so that wasn't too much of a, of a big transition. The more, I think the bigger transition was more of just like the anxiety of like not really knowing what's going on. Um, and so that was a lot to deal with. And then we came back after the summer and that's when like, it was like, okay, you still have lectures, but now you need to learn the clinical skills. So like you need to be back in person. Um, and I, I think that was hard for a lot of us to to deal with and wrap our mind around of like, wait, you want us like all 180 of us to be back together in person. Um, and, you know, the, the administration did the best they could. They like chunked us into very small groups. They like everyone had to wear masks, obviously, and PPE. And when we did see patients or, or standardized patients, as we call them, which are the ones who teach us how to do exams, like everybody had PPE. Everybody had to have like had no symptoms recently. Obviously, like a big part of that is just luck because like you can you can be asymptomatic and still have it. 
Um, so I think we just got lucky, but I think a lot, and we didn't really have many positive cases on campus, which was again, just super, super lucky. Um, and I'm, I'm super grateful that like so many of our standardized patients were still willing to like come from the community to like be able to teach us how to do these skills and how to like be doctors one day. Um, but I, I think the biggest part was a lot of us just pushing back on administration very often to be like, no, we like shouldn't be doing this as many people in person and then being like, okay, like let's find a middle ground. Uh, Cause like there are just certain things you still need to, to learn. And uh, so that's, it's just been a lot of back and forth and, and trying to grapple with the fact that like, you know, as a student, I have an idea of what I think is best, but I'm only going through this the first time, whereas administration has been teaching students over and over and over again and has seen multiple groups of students through med school. Mm-hmm. I must say that if you were my mother's child, she would be absolutely over the moon that you're going to medical school because I feel like there's always this idea that like, if you become a lawyer, if you become a doctor, oh my God, the most amazing life choices you could ever make. Um, would you say that there's been like influence of your family about why you wanted to pursue medicine? Is it something that you just found fascinating all on your own that you really wanted to, to go down that route? How, how did you come to the idea of pursuing this as a, as a, as a profession? Yeah, um, so I, I, my family has always been supportive of, of whatever I wanted to do. Um, I think, um, you know, that, that story of like the like Chicano immigrant or the, the first gen child is more of like my mother's story than it is mine. Um, so she like moved up here when she was young from Zacatecas. Um, and she, she's like number eight out of 11. And she was the one that was like, no, I'm going to go to college. And, and my abuelito was like, why are you going to go to college to get a degree so you can just get married and stay at home? And she was like, absolutely not. Like I am getting a degree. And, and then she did. And then she met my dad and then they had us. And then while she was raising us, she was like, I'm going to go back and get my master's. Um, like while raising us. So like her story is the one that's like the, the, the one that paved the road for the rest of us. So then growing up for us, it was more like, I just want you to go get a college degree. I don't care what you do with it. I just want to say that I got my kids through college. Um, and so she, she was always just, both her and my dad were always supportive of whatever we wanted to do. Um, I didn't want to go into medicine for a while, actually. Like I was always good at science, but um, being that there really isn't anyone in the States uh, in my family that is a doctor, you just don't really like know what that path really means or what it's like. And so the idea of going into like hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for a degree that I was like, do I really want to do this? Like, was very intimidating. And so I thought about being a therapist. I thought about being a professor and like, those were fun for a while, like in terms of taking the classes and like thinking about it. But um, I started working in the ER after I graduated from undergrad and I like immediately fell in love with that environment and being able to like be with people on like arguably some of the worst days of their lives um, just kind of really fit with my personality and, and how I saw like my role of being able to walk with people. And so after that, I was like, okay, like, Let's figure out how to get into med school. And now here we are. I, I think it's interesting because I tried to make this correlation when you mentioned it. Like the fact that you said that there aren't many people within your family or within your life in the States who are pursuing this particular field, who have gone through all of the rigmarole that you're going through to, to make your dreams come true. But I'm curious because you did mention that your mom comes from a very large family. Um, and usually Latinos, we all have very large extended families. Like, even though you didn't have an introduction to other people within this field, what was your introduction to even what queerness looked like at an, a young age? Because I have nobody in my family that I know of who's like openly queer, even like gives me a sense that they might be queer. Like, 
what was your introduction to that? More so than maybe yeah. even what it was about being a doctor. Yeah, that is a fantastic question. Um, so I am not the first. I'm not even the second. I think I'm the third. Um, oh, on my mom's okay. side. Yeah, yeah. So I have an older cousin who, like, like we all knew. Um, and he, like, came out, I guess, when I, I must have been fairly young still. Um, so he navigated more of that. Um, than I think I did. And, you know, it was nice to have somebody there. And like, you know, we didn't really talk about it growing up because like, I didn't really like, I always knew I was different, but I didn't really like understand or identify with queerness like until like pretty recently in my life. Um, but like just having him there to know that like everything would be okay when that moment finally happened was like so uh, relieving. Um, and I mean, I, I think like seeing him go through it was like a, a nice moment of like, okay, like my family is like pretty chill with this. Cause like he, he like took his boyfriend one time to meet with my abuelita. And I mean, she's like probably, she would probably have been like an eight or eighties at the time. And she was just like, wow. Like they just seem so similar. Good for him. And like, that's it. That's like all she said. That's amazing. Then, like, yeah. Agreed. And like none of my Theo Theos like had a problem with it. Like they weren't necessarily like the most like, Oh my gosh. Hi. How are you? Tell us about your life. But they weren't like, you know ill get the fuck out they were just kind of like cool like they were they weren't at the pride parade but they also weren't picketing the pride parade exactly exactly i can see that i think that there's such a beauty in that like being able to have examples whether on a, a family level or just in your overall environment to be able to see that but you grew up in southern california and i feel like that's a very queer friendly place too even if like not being able to have i mean even though you did say that there are people in your family that are but like being able to grow up in an environment where that seemed to be welcome, seemed to be appreciated, seemed to be affirmed. Like, was that also part of, of helping you get to the place where you eventually got to with your acceptance? I, I don't think it hurt, but I don't think it really helped. I think if I had grown up obviously in a more like rural area, like my story would be a lot different. So like, I am really grateful I grew up in SoCal. Um, but I think at the time, like I, like, I don't really remember there being a whole lot of like out, queer supportive people like in my in my local communities uh growing up in socal like in the, in the city like in, in downtown la and west hollywood like yeah of course it's always been there but like out in the suburbs not not really uh like my high school my public high school was like fairly conservative and like ran by the christian group um and in socal in orange county well orange county yeah. is a little bit more conservative um but yeah so i, I would say like it could have been worse but like i don't really think it was that big of an impact um at the time were you, uh, was your family the kind that would go to mass all the time, that had like all the velas, had the Virgen de Guadalupe in every corner? Like, because that's very much my experience, especially if I went to my grandmother's house, if I went to this particular Theo Thea's house, like there was so much Catholic imagery around me that only emphasized the fact it was like, oh shit, like we're pretty Catholic. I would say we had all the imagery, we have all the statues, we have like, all the sets like we're ready for every major catholic holiday that being said <laughs> we only went to mass whenever my mom felt guilty for not taking us to mass or like on easter um oh, okay yeah like like at, when i was a teenager we definitely went more regularly and i think that was just because i was in confirmation class um but and that's a pretty common trend just in my mom's side of the family in general like we're not the most actively going to church but like we have photos of that like everywhere <laughs> 
I think there's something to be said about, and I always like to bring this up when I'm talking to another Mexican-American person or somebody with Mexican heritage, because it's what I know. I, I don't want to project onto others if it's not their experience. But there's something so culturally Catholic about Mexican identity that you don't have to go to mass every Sunday. You can go for your ashes on Ash Wednesday. You can go for midnight mass. You can go for Easter. That, you don't even have to go to any of that. But you can have all of the things inside the home that show that your devotion exists. And I think there's a lot of joy and power to that because it doesn't require this performative thing of, let me go sit down in the pew, let me go pray this amount, I'll be there for an hour and then I'll leave. I think that there's something so special about kind of keeping it to yourself in that way and allowing it to grow in, in, indoors in the way that it's required to. Yeah, agreed. I think one thing that's, um very different in terms of like American Catholicism, especially like white American Catholicism, is that it very much just is a religion. It doesn't have that cultural aspect. Um, whereas like, in, especially in Mexican Catholicism, like it is both a religion and a culture and like taking like a big step back, like obviously that's just the way Spain chose to colonize Mexico um, was to make them one and the same, which, is, which isn't the same case here in the States. Um, but I, I agree, I do think since then um, it, is something that is just like so deeply ingrained in terms of like how I view my cultural identity. And like, even if I'm not like an actively practicing Catholic, there's just something about it that is like, feels like home that I can't turn away from. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that, about the fact that you're not an actively practicing Catholic. What does that necessarily mean? Define how you kind of use that phraseology for, for our listeners. For me, it means like I don't go to church that often, like really, if ever. I go when like I feel a need to go, which hasn't happened in a while. Um, and even then, it's mostly just because it's like there's something so comforting about going somewhere where you know what they're going to do and what they're going to say, um, no matter where you are. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I haven't gone to mass in a while. I don't really go to confession a little bit because I just like don't see my sins as like something I should feel guilty for. I see them more as a learning opportunity uh, to improve on myself. Yes, uh, I like that. <laughs> a learning opportunity. Let my sins be. Exactly. It's like, I'm not going to go and confess and say, I feel sorry for them. I don't. Like I learned something from them. Um, mm -hmm. So that's probably the biggest thing is like, I just don't really go to mass and I don't like follow the guidelines a hundred percent. Because some of them just don't make sense or they just don't apply to me anymore. I'm so glad you brought up this idea of confession, because for me, I would always be so scared about confession, right? Because they make it scary. They tell you, like, you have to go talk to this priest either in person or behind that little, like, mesh thing that they have set up. And you have to tell them everything. And at, at a particular time in my life, I thought that meant having to say, I thought about boys. I was looking at boys. I'm gay. And, like why put people through that traumatic experience of having to relive all these things that they think they, that were bad when they really weren't. Um, so I appreciate that you and I kind of share this idea about confession and not feeling the need to tell um, our innermost doings to a man in a dress, as I always like to think about it sometimes. Because <laughs> um, it's true, right? Like what yeah, gets, yeah. how does it not get any queerer than men in dresses telling us what we need to be doing in a structure that is so patriarchal. Um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of, again, your your day-to-day -day cultural understanding of Catholicism, because I, I, I appreciate you being honest and saying that, you know, hey, I don't go to church. I only go to church if I really feel the need to. Um, so what are some like 
day-to-day things where you see your Catholicism surface or you see things that are reminiscent of how you grew up because you did grow up in a very Catholic environment. Yeah, I think, I think one, having all the, like, the photos of the Vigencita everywhere, even in my own room, because my mom always gives them to me every time I go home. <laughs> she's like, she's, like she's, she's watching over you. I want her to protect you. Like, you're so far from me. Here, take it. Um, so that's a big one. I think, I think the, the, there's just something about the candles that, like, I can't shy away from. Um, like, I have my saint candles laying around. Um, and I, I think, more importantly, like, just, like, in a, like, in, in a spiritual day-to-day life, like, it's just, uh, like, I typically like to take a time to like reflect on like no matter how stressful life is like I don't feel alone and I think a lot of that comes like I may be alone but I don't feel lonely you know mm-hmm. um I think a lot of that comes from like the way that I still interact with like the idea of, of a divine presence even if I don't necessarily like name it the same like idea of God that Catholicism has uh, but it pretty much is obviously because like my cultural understanding of God is very like set at this point in my life mm-hmm. um but yeah i think i think besides like the images the idea of not being alone in the universe is, is a very comforting thought that stays with me on a day-to-day basis have you had conversations with your family or even your mom just because you brought up your mom giving you these images of the virgen like does she ask about your like you're going to church does she ask about your ability to express your religious ideas in a particular way because I remember there was a time where my mom every Sunday would ask but did you go to mass did you go to mass did you go to mass Emisa? I was like ugh, I, I didn't go mom and like always feeling somewhat guilty about it but like is, is she that kind of parent where she's always asking if you are practicing in ways that maybe she thinks or hopes that you do uh, she did for like a, a while, um, especially when I m- first moved to college, um, but not not recently. Like every now and then we'll talk about it or like when, when I went home last time, uh, we usually pray before we eat, but I was like really hungry. So I just took a bite and she was like, okay, it's your turn. Like lead the prayer. And I was like, do you, do you really want me to do that right now? Like, is it really <laughs> where we're going? Like, like our understanding of God is the same, but like, is this really what you want me to do right now? And she was like, you're being so dramatic. Fine. Like your dad will pray. And I was like, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to be said about the generational aspect of our affiliation with Catholicism, right? Like our parents, our grandparents, they were very much, either they went to Catholic school, they would do the whole daily mass. If not, they would go to weekly mass. Like theirs was more of a day-to-day. Ours is just an understanding, right? Like it just isn't the same anymore. We are a more progressive bunch where we understand like, uh, this church is hella homophobic and hella transphobic and hella racist and hella sexist. Like, uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to be tied to it as much as I was before. Um, is that kind of like where you're, you're, you lie? Like this idea of like, you're now fully aware about the place that you grew up in, not being the beautiful temple that it was designed or, or kind of uh, packaged to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I can like remember the exact moment. Um, it was a few years ago. I was living in, in Portland after I graduated from college, uh, living with some friends. And I think we like watched a queer movie on Netflix. I don't remember what it was, um, but, but it, they were like a nice, happy couple and like nobody died. And so that was very pleasant. Um, but Where <laughs> <laughs> was it just like a queer traumatic story of like, oh, he died. Like, ugh, why? Why do you have to do that to us? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I remember like afterwards thinking like, and I, I had been going to mass pretty regularly at this point. Um, but I was like, you know, if I ever had a partner and we had kids, 
and we still went to mass, like I would then have to explain to my kids, like, why does the church like kind of hate your parents' relationship? Um, and is that really something that I that I want to do? And I think at that point I was like, no, like that's not the, the life I would want for my like idealized future kids, like to to have to like be in this supportive environment, but like that doesn't really support you all, like, support your parents all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think at that point I was like, it's it's like not, you know, I, I I can either stay in this to try to change it from the inside, um, or I could just live my life, and I don't really feel called to spend all my time and energy focusing on trying to reform the church. I think some people feel that I personally don't, I would rather like grow where I can and like pick my battles. And that's just not the battle that I feel called to pick. Good for you. I like, I like being able to like come to terms with that realization. Like, you know what? I could do all this stuff. I'm tired. I have other things to do. I'm fucking going to medical school. I'm learning to save people's lives. I don't have the time to tell the church like, hi, you're so homophobic that I can't bring my future children to talk to you. Um, have you, I'm glad you brought up this idea of like future family and like the ideas of what to do later, because I've been so, I'm not, I don't want to say significantly older than you. I'm several years older than you. And so I've, I'm a little closer to the idea of like, okay, if I have kids, if things happen, like, do I take them to the church because it is such a Mexican thing, because it is such a, a, a familial thing that I'm so used to? Um, do you still think about that? Like, do you think about what the future will hold and whether or not, uh, especially if like kids come into the picture, if if your version of Catholicism will be the the right way to, to introduce introduce them to the faith? That's a really good question. Um, I think that will take a lot more thinking to, to, to really figure that out as we go. Um, I, I mean, I've definitely thought about like, what if we went to like one of those, like, you know, cute, super liberal Protestant churches. Um, but then I, I remember watching this TV show on Hulu and it was like a gay, a gay Irish kid in like Chicago that they got canceled for like two seasons, but um, in it, they're like Chicago, they're Irish Chicago Catholics, which is like also pretty intense. And uh, the, he took his mom to like one of those, like, you know, like pray to whoever you want to just like feel the <laughs> presence of divinity. And she was like, oh, hell no. Like, I need the structure. I need like, I need you to tell me what to do. And I was like, honestly, same. I, I, like for this reason, I don't think I could do like a very open. Uh, I need a Padre Nuestro. I need to be able to kneel at certain times. I need the incense. I need to know, you know, the peace be with you is coming. I need to know that the exactly. offering's happening at a particular time. Because it's it's very nostalgic. It, it does remind us of all the things that we we grew up with, whether we appreciated it or not at the time. It just it was there, and it's hard to just erase those memories because of of, of things that no longer um, tie us to to that religion the way that it was. Totally, and I, I always like jokingly tell my friends whenever we do talk about religion. Um, that like, if I don't leave mass feeling like a little guilty about myself, like, what was the point? Like, why did I go? <laughs> that is such a Catholic thing. It's like, uh, <laughs> just feel shitty about yourself at all times. And you have to, I had a friend yesterday tell me, and I appreciated this. He said for Lent, he gave up guilt. And I said, you know, one good for you because every fucking Catholic is carrying that around at all moments. Um, but two, like allowing yourself to be comfortable knowing that you're going to fuck up or fuck up in the way that people are telling you that it's fuck up, but it might not be like, just give yourself the grace to be a human. Like we all are not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And just be okay with that. 
and not be hung up on it. I love that you have conversations with your friends about religion. I only have conversations about that with my other queer Catholic friends, not with anybody else who doesn't have those identities. Who like so? How do are they also queer Catholics, or are they are they other queer folks who have had to deal with religion, um, or is it just people that you feel comfortable being able to share this with? I think it's a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's other queer Catholics, because I honestly don't think I've really met a whole lot of those in my life so far. Um, I think often it's, it's either my queer friends or it's just like my regular friends that are that are religious themselves. And they're like, wait, how do you like grapple with like, you know, the what appears to be a huge cognitive dissonance? And I was like, okay, like, let's talk about this then. Um, and so usually we, then we go into that. And I, you know, I think all parts of my story of how I've gotten this far in my life, I'm pretty comfortable with. Um, and I think a big part of that was going to a Catholic undergrad um, because it really teaches you that like, you already lived through a story. So like by sharing it and talking to people about it, like you're not reliving it. You're, you already have been through it, the good and the bad. Um, and so since then I've been very big on like, it's like my narrative. Like I am gonna own what, like who I have become because of it. Nice. I love, there's, there's something very important. And I think it's something that queer people come to the understanding of very early on when they're totally set in their ways about this is who I am. This is the life I want to live. This is the person I'm going to be is just being completely comfortable and standing in that, on that ground. And I think when you add the additional element of saying like, Oh, well, I'm a queer person of faith, whatever degrees you have tied to that faith, like another one of those things where you just have to stand your ground not even just for the people around you, but for yourself and say, you know what, I'm fine with this. I'm fine if I just have a picture of the Virgencita and that's it. And like pray to her, don't do rosaries, don't do reading the Bible, don't do Bible studies. And that's totally okay because there are no rules. That's the biggest surprise of it all. There are no rules in life when it comes to stuff like this. And I'm glad that you've come to that understanding and realization so early on. Yeah, same, same. Um, absolutely same. Oof. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what's to come. And I, I think that obviously you're, you're very consumed in, in doing your medical school stuff, which understandably so. Um, but like, do you see that as, as like a God calling? Like, did you, do you think that after thinking about doing other things, you mentioned at the very beginning that you were like, ah, maybe I want to do this. Ah, maybe I want to do that. Like, do you think this is a sign from Diosito that this is what you're meant to be doing or is it something else? Is it another internal feeling that it doesn't quite have justification yet? Yeah, good, good question. This is something that I, um, this kind of, I guess theme in general is something that I've grappled with over the years a lot of the idea of like, uh, you know, like God, God has planned everything for you in your life, which I like really do not believe in at all. Cause it just like logically doesn't make sense. Cause then if like, God is the reason for everything good, then in my mind, therefore, God is also the reason for everything bad. And like, what kind of all loving God, like, would purposely put bad shit in your life? Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. So for me, mm -hmm. like, the way the way I view God in that sense is like, God isn't there to, to say, like, you need to go from point A to point B. God isn't more there to be like, hey, so you're going from point A to point B. Like, do you need, do you need someone to walk with you? Do you need somebody to like support you? And so similarly, like, God may have given me like my gifts, which are typically like, being just really empathetic and like really smart apparently uh i don't feel that right now um but <laughs> but i think i think it's like how do then how do i then use those gifts that i've been given and that have been fostered through um 
my life and develop uh, to like then support others. Um, and so I think for me, all of that best aligned in, I mean, through medicine. Um, and so, so to kind of circle back, I think, I think it, it like on one hand it is a calling, but I think it's more of a calling to use the gifts that I have and it's up to me to figure out how best to use them. And for me, that's through medicine. Nice. I love it. Oh, such a beautiful way to, to bring this conversation to a close. Well, I do want our, our listeners to be able to, if you feel comfortable uh, sharing ways in which they can follow you to see how you're doing with your schooling, how you're doing with your journey. Um, if you feel so comfortable to share that, how can they go about following you? Yeah, good question. Um, I My Instagram and Twitter handles, I think, are uh, at J-R-O underscore J-O-E. Um, and that's probably the best way. I will say Twitter is more of my like queer medicine presence and Instagram is more of like my personal like life, but like they're both totally valid options and neither are private. So feel free to go for it, I guess. <laughs> queer medical presence. I like that. Um, and just a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us at Hey Jorge, H-E-Y-X-O-R-J-E and myself at Jorge O-X-O-R-J-E-O. And of course the website, heyjorge.com. But Joseph, this has been so much fun. And I want to end by saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. <laughs>